Margot Livesey's latest novel, The Road from Bellhaven, is an enchanting coming-of-age story about a young woman, Lizzie Craig, with second sight. It is, we soon learn, a dubious gift she's inherited. When Lizzie Craig was a little girl growing up in the care of her grandparents on Bellhaven Farm in late 19th century Scotland, she discovers that she can look into the future. She has moments when she sees what she calls pictures in her mind's eye. Some of the visions are ordinary and others are of a more serious nature involving dramatic situations, accidents, and worse. She soon discovers that she might get small glimpses into the future, but she can't change what will happen in spite of her best efforts. Years later, as a young woman, another thing she can't change is what she feels for Lewis Hunter, a young man who courts her and convinces her to move to Glasgow, the big city that represents freedom for her from the farm, but not necessarily opportunities. And there are limits to Lewis Hunter's devotion to her, as she soon learns. And there are more dramatic events related to his treachery. What can Lizzie do? Can her second sight finally allow her a second chance to rectify the things she's broken and surrendered for what she thought was love and a bright future? This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Margot Livesey about her latest novel, The Road from Bellhaven. Well, let me ask you about Lizzie Craig. She's the protagonist of the novel. Can you tell us just a little bit about her? Lizzie Craig is an orphan. Um, her mother has died of pneumonia. Her father has died in a fishing accident off the coast of Fife. Fife is a, a county in Scotland, just north of Edinburgh, across the Firth of Forth. And Lizzie goes to live with her grandparents on their farm. Um, the farm is called Bellhaven. Um, they are um, affectionate, well-educated, strict, very hardworking. Um, they do have a sense of humour. And Lizzie grows up in some ways fairly happily for the first few years. But there is a kind of longing in her, and that longing is for friendship. And um, as soon as she starts going to school, she thinks to the village school, which is two miles away, she thinks oh, I can have friends. But it's not that easy to make friends when you live two miles from the village on a farm and have many chores to do. And she's a very solitary young person. And I think part of maybe what informs that solitude, besides this sort of, the farm is a very beautiful place, but there's a lot of hard work to do. Her grandparents, you know, are a generation removed. But also, she's an only child. She's very introspective. But then she's also harboring this secret about the quote-unquote pictures that she's able to see. There's a clairvoyance or a second sight that she has. And I think that also does a lot to set her apart from the other young children. I mean, it's hard enough, to, yes, to go to school and try to be friends with everyone, but she is so far removed from them for so many reasons. But can you talk about this idea about the second sight that that she has? 
Lizzie's um, at the age of four or five um, begins to realize that she sometimes sees pictures of the future. Sometimes they're quite trivial things like somebody getting a new hat or which of the hens is going to be Sunday dinner. Sometimes they're more momentous. And um, this the experience of these pictures is something that she almost immediately recognizes she shouldn't talk about, that it's somehow it's somehow forbidden. And so as you say, Yvette, it begins to separate her from other people, this secret that she has. And of course, one of the hardest things about her glimpses of the future is that she can never do anything about it. And she can't, you know, she knows that something's going to happen and she tries even to identify some of the elements around like the leaves on the tree that might indicate what time of the year this might happen, for instance. But she really is not able to stop what is going to happen. We soon discover, no spoilers, but she's really not able to stop things. Things are in, in motion. One thing Lizzie could not see in her future, she had no idea about it, was the existence of a sister, her sister Kate McLeod. Their first days together uh not so auspicious, <laughs> but they do grow to be quite close. And I should say we're in the late 1800s, and there's quite a bit here about travel and what a long distance two miles from a school can be or what a long distance a, a, a county over can be from a place. Um, but Kate comes into the picture, and I really appreciate how the story can advance because Lizzie and Kate become close eventually, and because they can keep in touch through letters. So I'm aware that there was someone in your family who had second sight, and I was wondering then too about Kate. Was there a Kate in your family? Because this is a lovely sisterly relationship that develops over the course of the novel. So I'm just curious about a Kate in your family. Well, I grew up as an only child, the only child of two only children. But happily, there was a neighboring family who had four children and who left their door open. And they have become my my family in, in all respects, I would say, um, especially since my father and my stepmother died. So I, I'm happy to say I have two wonderful sisters and a brother and um, many nieces and nephews. Um, none of my adopted family, however, as far as I know, has second sight. And those stories came from my biological family. My mother, who died when I was very young, had a relationship with the supernatural. And in 2017, I discovered that my great-grandmother, Lizzie, also had a relationship with the supernatural, but that in her case, it, unlike my mother's, it took the form of seeing the future. That was one of the main reasons that propelled me to write the novel. I was so fascinated by that idea. Have you ever felt that you might have some kind of clairvoyance too, or some, some <laughs> kind of power that you brush off as coincidence, but that could be some kind of power like this that you could... I don't know, harness and use for good? <laughs> I've had a couple of experiences in my life that I would regard as, in some sense, supernatural. 
my beloved adopted father, who also had second sight. Oh, so I'm wrong, actually. My adopted family did play a role. He had second sight. Said to me that he thought I had my mother's gifts, but that my life was too busy and too urban for me to experience them. So I'm still hopeful, Yvette, that mm. something, something may surface. Oh, how interesting. Now, Lizzie can see these pictures into the future. And I'll divulge, you know, no spoilers when I say that, again, she can't really change things despite her best efforts. Life is going to happen. And that's really where so much of the tension is in this book. For her, it's something of a burden part of the time because it's a secret, but also because she knows what's going to happen. And it's not always an ordinary thing or a good thing. It doesn't at all make her life easier. And I feel like there's still some resonance for the rest of us there. We try to listen to our gut or to our intuition, and life is going to come as it will. Is this an idea that tracks for you with how you perceive Lizzie in spite of the fact that she has this gift? Yeah, you know, very much. And I think there's an endless tension for most of us in our our desire to have control, our efforts to have control over our lives, and our deep understanding that there are so many things we don't have control over, and that mistakes and accidents and coincidences play a, a significant role in most people's lives. This is your 10th novel, and it's one that's quite connected to an earlier novel of yours, the very sublime, one of my favorites, Eva Moves the Furniture. And you wrote about this connection in the acknowledgments of The Road from Bellhaven. I wonder if you can tell us about this connection between these two books. The Eva Moves the Furniture was written out of um, a longing for my mother, perhaps, but also out of deep fascination with her relationship with the supernatural. She saw people who were not visible to most other people, and she was visited by poltergeists, her, the hospital wards where she worked as a nurse. Her patients complained that the wards were noisy because the furniture was always thudding around. And so when I discovered about my great-grandmother, and her second sight, it it changed my relationship to what I thought I knew about my mother. I realized that what I'd understood as her unique gift might in fact be inherited, in fact, probably was inherited. And um, I wrote, um, started writing The Road from Belhaven in March of 2020. I was at work on another novel but I suddenly realized I wasn't going to be able to go to Scotland for many months because of COVID. And I really wanted to write a novel that would allow me to go to Scotland every day. Mm. That would be a magic carpet, if you will. And so I thought, oh, I will write a kind of prequel, if you like, to Eva Moves the Furniture. I will write about my great-grandmother, her grandmother, and her particular relationship with the supernatural. Another thing you share in your acknowledgments is this. You say, quote, one of the pleasures of writing The Road from Belhaven was rereading the books of my youth in the guise of research. 
I have a particular interest in rereading. Among the books you reread are were Mansfield Park by Jane Austen, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, Great Expectations, the list goes on. I have such an interest in rereading. I'm wondering if you can share what these new readings, these rereadings brought to you. Um, what were your experiences around rereading and even writing? Whatever you can share on the spot like this, whatever comes to mind about the idea of rereading, is there something that stands out for you? For me, it was mostly a rapturous experience. The books that I had read as a, as a child and as a teenager uh, stood up incredibly well and were incredibly entrancing and seductive for the most part. From the opening pages, I would find myself in, you know, following Fanny around Mansfield Park or running across the moors with Cassie and Heathcliff or, or um, moving to London with Pip in Great Expectations. And even though, of course, I knew what was, was coming, it really didn't lessen the suspense of the reading. In some ways, the reading was sometimes even more suspenseful than my first reading because I so much wanted sometimes to change what was coming. And like like Lizzie Craig, I was helpless to change what was coming. I have to say, I love the names of the farm animals. Some of them are quite literary. <laughs> I just love that. I just love all of those elements of, of your book. Now, the grandparents, uh, Rab and Flora, they love Lizzie. They take care of her. They have expectations for her, and they don't seem to imagine that she will ever leave Belhaven, that she will ever leave the farm. And then enter Hugh. He puts that idea out there for her. He's a young man that helps out on the farm and makes the decision to move to Glasgow, saying that he's just fed up with farming because his quote is, um, everything depends on luck. And we do see how true this is if we didn't already understand this about farm life, the livestock, the crops, the the weather, the backbreaking work that never ends. And he does influence her to see that there's a another world out there, even for women in some ways, but there may not always be opportunities for women as as we find they're they're very limited. But then I kept thinking, it's the same in the big city. Everything kind of depends on luck there too. So even as Lizzie makes her way to a life that she thinks she wants, she thinks she wants something different, we find there again more tension. It's fraught with more questions for her than anything else. And I do wonder about this idea about women, women at that time in the late 1800s, but but also, in, frankly, in 2024. Um, and I, I wonder if, if you can speak about this. This is a Bildungsroman. I mean, it's a coming-of-age story. It's a timeless one in so many ways. Can you, can, do you think so too? Yeah, no, I really do. And I'm happy that you picked up on the sort of tension, um, the en and endless negotiation between the country and the city. Um, 
in the 19th century um, in Britain, you know, it was the great age of industrialization and many, many people moved to the, to the city um, and gave up what they had had in small rural communities for money and a, a kind of autonomy, if you will, that perhaps they hadn't had in their local parishes. And Lizzie has some of that idea when she first goes to Glasgow, she's enraptured and in and enamored. But gradually she begins to realize that the city too, I think, is is more complicated than than she first imagined. And as you say, that it's particularly complicated perhaps for women, um, that the roles and possibilities for women are are quite limited. And um, of course, in Lizzie's time, the 1880s, that was even truer than it is today. And I would say that today, I mean, women do have many, many more freedoms. And yet it's impossible not to think, perhaps I'm going too far here, um, watching the news or reading the newspaper, that men are still playing a disproportionately large role in, in shaping all our futures. I see this too. And to say nothing of the, you know, the the love story, the the young love story with um Lewis Hunter, you know, there's this whole thing happening with what Hugh represents, even what Callum and Kate represent, the idea of for Lizzie of staying back at the farm and possibly inheriting that and that would be her future but she soon sees that that's not in the cards for her and the city becomes a place of of a certain amount of potential and promise and then all of those dreams are dashed for reasons that I won't share here I won't spoil it for people who haven't yet read the book but it's all sort of of a piece of this idea um within a kind of the Bildungsroman of the of the coming of age of all of the things that she's learning about herself and her future. You know, I think about how this could qualify as an historical novel, if only because it's you know it it takes place in another time in the past. And yet, I I see again this timelessness in regards to the opportunities that women have. It becomes so relatable in what it shows us about ourselves as adults. It shows us that we have to pay attention to the past in order to understand ourselves now. Lizzie has this ability to see into the future, but there's so much that we can learn from her about looking at the past in order to understand ourselves better in the now. No, I think that's very beautifully put. And I was going to say that one of the big shocks for Lizzie, and I, as perhaps for, for many people, is the discovery of um, sex and romantic passion, if you will, that as a, as a child of eight, nine, ten, she thinks she understands the world around her and she thinks she understands the adults she knows. But as she grows up, she begins to understand there's this kind of dark river running under everything that is changing people's behavior, that is making Kate, for instance, 
pursue her boyfriend, uh, her boyfriend Callum, so ardently. And at first, this is really mysterious to Lizzie, and it never, in a way, becomes a simple thing. I mean, if we're going to be, if our feelings are going to guide us, how can we always trust our feelings? And and um, I agree that looking at the past is is one way that we can get better at knowing how to respond to our feelings. Yes, I was thinking about the character of of Grace, who had drowned because she was pregnant, and the stable boy wouldn't marry her. And there was this very sordid story that Lizzie knew about, and it was a bit of a cautionary tale. And she knows that Kate and and Callum are, you know, carrying on in their in their young love ways, you know, yeah. uh, she's very observant and very watchful and she knows what's going on, except, you know, she's a little bit, she feels quite put upon when she's like, nobody told me about all this other stuff I was going to experience and feel. I might have been more ready. You know, she didn't have sort of visions about that. And she falls into it, I suppose, the way most people do. And, and it was not so pleasant, uh, all of the time. I mean, there's there's a lot that's fraught about her, her notions of love very quickly, as we see. Um, and this is all part of this coming of age story. So I just I I find that also so compelling here is there's so much about her relationship with her grandparents, her um, regret not paying attention to certain things or spending so much time uh, with them. I mean, I feel like this is such such a resonant story. The the regrets that she has uh, about leaving and the the you know, and this is this is a very universal story for so many who have who leave home, who make a decision to leave home and then look back and think that they've missed out on something, even though. Um, you know, they're at a very, very particular stage in life where they have to be quite present. So I just, I just find this such a, um, a compelling story about, about us all, to be honest, just in, in the way that we all sort of come up in the world thinking there's, there's, our future is out there. And yet we're always sort of looking back. Yeah, no, you you say that so eloquently. And I was going to add that one part of the research I did for the novel to try to understand what life was like in the 1880s was um, my reading of, of diaries and letters and um, non-fiction about that period, because life is presented in a certain way in the novels I loved as a child and still love as an adult. And I wanted to know, well, what was it really like for an unmarried woman? Or what was it really like to go and work in a big city by yourself? And it was very illuminating to read the accounts by working girls and um, young men and women. Yes, I I was really struck by this idea that your research took so many forms, including reading about, uh, as you say, weather, work, place, the diaries, the other ephemera, 
And based on what I've read, your research process sounds so exhaustive, so thorough, beyond thorough. And I was wondering, does that research ever lead you to other writing projects? It does. And of course, you know, the temptation to put in all kinds of things um, was quite great. For instance, I read a wonderful account about a, a Chinese juggler in Glasgow and um, who was juggling around the time that Lizzie was living there. And it, it, it was all wonderful, but I thought, you know, this is going to totally derail my novel <laughs> if I follow this Chinese juggler. <laughs> well, I hope we read about him in a future novel. That would be great. Margot Livesey, thank you so much for talking to me today. I am so honored and so thrilled to be able to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, Yvette. It's just a pleasure. And thank you for your profound and deeply empathetic questions. I'm just so grateful to you for reading The Road from Belhaven with such attention and such affection. It was totally my pleasure. Thank you so much. Margot Livesey is the author of The Road from Belhaven. It's published by Knopf. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>